Hello, and welcome to Michael's Record Collection, episode number 36. In this episode, I'm talking with Steve and Jerry. They're the hosts of one of my favorite music podcasts, Something for Nothing, a Rush fancast. Every week, Steve and Jerry have an interesting topic, and usually a great guest, as they celebrate and analyze the music of the legendary Canadian trio. They spread Rush news and their love of the music to others, and they do a great job. I spoke with Steve and Jerry about their show, and then... We talked about my favorite Rush album, Signals, from 1982. We give our overall thoughts and go track by track through a brilliant early 80s Rush album. I hope you enjoy this as much as I enjoyed talking Rush with Steve and Jerry. Here we go. Welcome to another episode of Michael's Record Collection. I'm very excited to have with me today the uh, two co-hosts from Something for Nothing, a Rush fan cast steve and jerry are with me steve and jerry thank you so much for being on the show thanks for having us yeah thanks for having us i am a huge rush fan and i've uh, found your podcast and i've been consuming it as quickly as i can but there are still a few episodes i haven't uh, been able to get to and it seems like every week i find that you're reading an email from somebody who's kind of doing the same thing that I that I did, except for a lot of those people seem to be going in order and I'm just jumping around. <laughs> <laughs> well, we appreciate you listening. That's for sure. Yep. So you guys conceived this show on a trip out West to see Rush. Is that correct? Or it was just a trip out West? No, actually we were going out to Denver to go to Red Rocks. We had never been there before. And we were seeing Death Cab for Cutie. And in between the flight and the show, we decided to take a ride out to Utah mm-hmm. to Arches National Park. And on that ride, Jerry and I were discussing podcasts. And Jerry, maybe you take it from here. Um, yeah, we were just talking about the different things we love about podcasts because we have different tastes. Some of them overlap. He's more of a sports guy, and I'm just more of like a general interest type of person, murder murder podcasts i suppose too in there um and one thing we found we had in common is that we loved it when there were two hosts and there was a certain topic you know what i mean just like one basically one topic that could be branched out into other things but it was mm-hmm. basically a topic and i think that's about as far as we got right steve we were just like yeah the, the, this would be cool to do something like this and you're like yeah wouldn't it be cool to do something like this and then we didn't that was it. And then as we were driving along, we were listening to Rush and we were listening to the song Kid Gloves. And I, Steve had, didn't know what the phrase Kid Gloves meant. So I think I went off on some kind of long story about the origin <laughs> of the phrase Kid Gloves. And then it was like a Seinfeld moment. And I was like, well, hey, we could do this. And Steve's like, what, talk about Kid Gloves? I'm like, no, talk about, <laughs> talk about Rush. Talk about Rush. And then we just, it was like two weeks later, we just started doing it. This is the show. It's, this uh, is this the, is show. the show, exactly. It's even got a Seinfeld name, something for nothing. Right. <laughs> uh, which obviously is a, is a, also a, a very good Rush song. How You guys have known each other for a long time. How long have you known each other? We've known each other since the fifth grade. So it's been over 40 years. So we have that in common with Rush. Uh, They were together for over 40 years. Jerry and I have been together. We've been friends for over 40 years. And I feel like that helps with the chemistry of our show. 
And strangely, we're going to be talking about signals today. And one of the songs is chemistry. That's right. And so nice. Rush, Rush has chemistry. We think we have chemistry and we think that's why it works. Steve is the king of segues. <laughs> king of segues. There isn't a sentence that somebody could say that he can't segue it into something else. It's amazing. Uh, it's a good skill to have. I actually, it is. Uh, I, that's one of the things that I liked about your podcast is you do have this chemistry and it's, it's clear that you have a friendship and a common respect and that you get along really great. And you, I think people with a natural good chemistry can speak to each other without speaking over each other and that kind of thing. I think it all works very well. And in your honor, I wore my, my rush armor and sword uh, concert shirt from the, from the snakes and arrows tour. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's been a fun listen for me. I, I kind of started by, I think I started with your moving pictures. Um, you, when you when you went through moving pictures, I think it was like four episodes, and I just kind of I, I picked a few other albums, or maybe I p started with Power Windows. I, I started with Power Windows because that was my first Rush concert. Was Power Windows? What was your uh, your first Rush concerts? Power Windows. Power Windows. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Nineteen eighty six, March twenty ninth. I think it was nineteen eighty six. Uh, we told the story sure. on the podcast. I had four tickets to the show. I had nobody to drive me. And Jerry was the only one I knew with a license. <laughs> My birthday's in January. So I was the only one who had a license. There you go. The rest it was, is history. It was a good investment because you had uh, you had to get there. That's exactly. true. That's true. And I don't remember uh, a particular, I don't know. It's not like I wanted to go. It's not that I was just like, oh, Rush is playing. I probably, I had heard a couple songs maybe. But, uh, you know, I'll, at that time, I would just do anything. I was 17 or whatever, you know what I mean? Be like, yeah, I'll go yeah. to the Meadowlands Arena <laughs> in East Rutherford, New Jersey to go see a concert. I don't care. And it was really probably the best decision of my life. <laughs> Definitely one of the better decisions of my entire life. It's just, in, it's just strange thinking about that two hours literally just it kicked it just pointed me in a different direction mm -hmm. for my entire life it's it's quite remarkable so let's talk about how you found rush your your first exposure to rush i I'm, I'm interested to know because for me rush was a band that i'd heard some of their songs but until i think until mtv came along it was just a band that i sometimes heard on the radio and i think it was really with mtv and getting to see them play that I realized how complex their music was and how amazing they were at, at their jobs. And, and it kind of just grew from there. Well, for me, it was the Columbia House Record Club. I joined Columbia House, I believe, in 1982. And two of the albums I picked, based on hearing songs on the radio, as you said, uh, were Moving Pictures and Signals. And I was in a band at the time, and the drummer in the band and I Whenever we jammed, we'd always be playing Rush. We'd be playing Tom Sawyer, Red Barchetta, Limelight, whatever. And um, I only knew those two albums up until the time we went to the show in 1986. Mm -hmm. And that changed everything for me, seeing that show, seeing Rush live. I was, I was in after that. I went out and bought every album, and I'm pretty sure Jerry felt the same way. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I knew nothing. I went in knowing nothing and I came out needing to know everything. Yeah. It was, it was really a transformative two hours or whatever. I just, I really, I just sat there. 
I didn't know any of the songs. I might I might have heard um, Tom Sawyer, but I just I don't think I said a word to anybody the entire time. I just could not believe what I was witnessing. And then I think afterwards, for a couple hours, we drove around listening to Exit Stage Left, and that was it. I don't even remember. I I might have just gone to the record store the next day or the next couple of days. I you know I bought them. I bought LPs. I bought the cassettes so I could have them in the car. And I basically listened to Rush exclusively, probably for at least a year, if not two. Wow. How many times have you guys seen Rush live? I believe I'm at 28, and I think, Jerry, you're at 26, right? There were two shows that, yeah. that I went to that Jerry did not attend, but mm-hmm. but I've seen them 28 times, and I wish I had seen them more. Knowing what I know now, I wish I could go back and go to a bunch more shows, but uh, alas, that will not happen. Yeah, who had the money back then? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> to, to go all to these shows. I know, you know, we, we know people who just have you know, traveled all over the country, if not the world see them yeah it just wasn't that just wasn't in the cards for us back then <laughs> uh so what i hear steve saying and i agree with him is how i wish that i could live it all again um, <laughs> exactly i have seen rush more than any band that i've seen but i have only seen them eight times uh, i i worked in uh in college i worked several jobs and paid my own way through school so i not only did i never have money but i, had, I never had time to go and then I worked in sports for several years and basically from September to May uh, working in hockey, you just don't, you don't make plans to do anything. You're working every night, you're working 70, 80 hour weeks, that kind of thing. So I haven't gotten to see them as much as I wanted to, but I, I had a very special rush concert uh, experience because a lot of people, when they get married, they have bachelor parties and they, you know, they have a, cut loose and and maybe they go to Vegas or maybe they, somebody hires a stripper or whatever. I went to a rush concert with my friends. <laughs> um, That's awesome. we, we got married in Pennsylvania and my uh, friends, most of my friends live in Ohio where I grew up and, and there was a, a rush concert the week before the wedding in Columbus at Polaris amphitheater. And I said, ah, that's my bachelor party. That's what I'm going to do. So that's uh that's my, uh, one of my many uh, stories. Sounds like a good night out to me. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Beats my bachelor party, that's for sure. <laughs> All right. Before we get to it, we'll we'll be able to do this again at the end. But I want you to tell people now that you have their attention where they can find you online. Jerry, you want to take this? No, you you do it every episode, Steve. You might as well do it now. <laughs> uh, well, we're on Twitter at Rush Fancast. Instagram, we are at the Rushcast. Uh, email it's the rushcast at gmail.com and you can find us pretty much on every podcast app Podbean is our host but we're on apple we're on spotify we're on stitcher just search something for nothing a rush fan cast and you'll find us yeah and if you haven't heard the show it's you guys get great guests i just i love the hugh syme uh, episode that you guys did recently uh, just the way you guys break down songs and the way you break down the lyrics put it's great because it 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 brings new things out the music to me that music that i've been listening to for years i it never occurred to me for example that uh he's got a date with fate and a black sedan could mean the hearse i never it never occurred to me (laughs) 
right <laughs> until i listened to your show and and that was actually fairly recently so i like the way you guys really dissect the lyrics everything about your show is is interest i find interesting and i think rush fans would find interesting uh but it's not just you two there's a third member of this uh this outfit <laughs> that I am still trying to figure out who this person is. The person <laughs> your bass intro and outro, you always thank Lex. I don't know who this person is. Well, you obviously haven't listened to episode 100 of our podcast. <laughs> that's right, that's right. We had Lex on as a guest. Okay. Uh, he's a friend of ours from high school. He's a bassist and um, we've known him for almost 40 years as well. Mm. And when we started the podcast, uh, I, I'm a bassist too, but I'm nowhere near as good as Lex is. So when we started the podcast, we needed something for the open and close, uh, but we didn't want to use rushed music for copyright reasons. So we decided to ask Lex to do a baseline for us. And he did. And he's been doing that for us every episode since. And he's, he's amazing. Yeah. It's a great intro and outro. And it's, it, it's the cool thing about it is it it's, it's unique to your show. It's different every time. And it's great. I mean, it gets you in the mood to for whatever you're going to be talking about that that time. And yeah, let's uh, talk about Rush. Yeah. And speaking of talking about Rush, I wanted to have you guys on because I love your show. I love what you do. And I wanted to tell people about it. And uh, although my audience is smaller than yours, maybe a few people will find your uh, find your podcast and, and become new fans and uh, regular listeners. And that's what we're here to do. And so I thought, usually when I have a guest on, if it's a musician, we talk about whatever, you know, they've got going on, whether their new album or their, you know, documentary or a book or whatever. Um, when I have somebody on that's usually another podcaster, I usually have, let them pick whatever their favorite album is. But since there's two of you, and since I've heard you guys a number of times struggle to find your favorite songs, your favorite albums... <laughs> Uh, I think Steve has about 70 songs in his top 10 Rush songs. <laughs> I figured I would make it easy and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about my favorite Rush album. And then, if, you know, we can have you guys back on and we can talk about your favorite Rush albums if you if you narrow it down. <laughs> Sound okay. good? That works yeah. for us. Yeah. I so mean, it's not like Signals isn't one of our, <laughs> it's got to be, it has to be in the top 10. I mean, it oh, has yeah. to be. <laughs> We they love all, signals, so this, they this all have is to all be good. In the top ten. <laughs> I, I don't know where it would be. It could be top five. I just am dreading doing those. We're going to do those at some point. I am dreading yeah. it though. Signals is definitely in my top nineteen Rush studio album. It's, <laughs> it's in there. Yeah, somewhere, somewhere in there. Uh, it is hard. I, it is any. I've been on a few other podcasts recently where we've had to rank things and pick playlists, and it's like choosing between your children it's difficult sometimes but uh, we are here to talk about signals got it in the 5.1 got it on the cd i don't have it on vinyl I, I haven't gotten it on vinyl yet but i'm sure i'll get it on, on vinyl i had it on cassette i got that from the bmg music club on cassette all oh, right that's the name of the other one that's the other from... one we were trying to come up with that yeah i used to uh, regularly have like three or four different accounts going with bmg at any given time <laughs> everybody did <laughs> everybody did yeah columbia house was good too what i didn't like about columbia house was if it wasn't their title if it wasn't a columbia or cbs title they had these pink lines on the cassette uh, on the yeah. edge of the cassette and i hated those so i i switched over to bmg because if it wasn't like an rca label 
or affiliated label, they at least just had like black print on the, you know, they didn't have the pink mm -hmm. lines. The pink lines drove me crazy. I don't know why. So Signals, ninth studio album for Rush. It was recorded from April to July, 1982 at Le Studio in, I don't know how to pronounce this, but I'm going to say Moran Heights, Quebec. Released September 9th, 1982 on Anthem Records, produced by Rush and Terry Brown. And Hugh Syme, of course, the cover, uh, art direction for the cover of a dog sniffing a fire hydrant, which is at least better than a dog lifting its leg on the fire hydrant. That's on the back <laughs> of the album, actually. <laughs> I'm not, not a huge, I'm not, I, I'm not a huge fan of the Signals cover art comparative compared to other Rush albums. How do you guys feel about it? Oh, I love it. I think it's one of the more iconic ones because it's so simple and because it, you immediately, when you hear the word signals, you know, there's communication, there's uh, someone dropping something off for someone else. You know what I mean? Like this clandestine type of uh, attitude. And that's what the dog is doing. The dog is learning uh, from the signals left by other dogs on the fire hydrant stuff about the dogs. And I wasn't kidding about the back of the album. If you if you look at the back of the CD or, or the album, you can see the uh, there's like a, a drawing of a fake town, like a rendering yep. of a town. And there's pin pushings with yellow string. That's supposedly there it is. All, all the places. Yeah, there it is. That's yeah. all the places where the dog has gone to the bathroom. All those little red put push pins <laughs> symbolize that's I'm telling you the truth. They're, they symbolize the fire hydrants and the yellow line is the is the P connecting them all. It's not many locations. There's those gotta be some <laughs> big piles. There's got <laughs> yeah. Usually dogs only do a little bit, but you know, this one was just tracking it all the way from one to the other. <laughs> Perhaps the owner of the dog was uh was picking up after it the whole time. So yeah, there was maybe, no yeah. mess. But I do like the the subdivisions uh, tie in uh, with the with the photo as well on the the back cover. Um, tell me, you guys researched this for your episodes on it. What what was your best story that you uncovered about signals uh, in in the course of doing your signals episodes? My favorite story uh, was about the analog kid. Uh, in my research, it was revealed that Neil borrowed the line too much. Too many hands on my time from the stick song, too much time on my hands. He just flipped <laughs> yes. it around. Yeah. And so sticks inspired rush, which I found amazing. Yeah, that's a good story. I, I did yeah. not know that until I listened to your, uh, to your show. So that was a good, good story uh, to, to hear. Jerry, and do you have other, a favorite? Uh, my favorite's about a new world, man. The, record company they had like four minutes left on one side and the record company wanted them to balance out the sides of the album back when album sides were supposed to run the same length it was probably a um due to the fact that the cassette you know needed to be the same length or something probably some penny pinching move um so they wrote new world man in a day in the studio and then recorded it the next day and it became one of their biggest hits and it's just this very simple song and it's, I think, three minutes. And, you know, it's just, it's like spontaneous genius. It's, it's like a genie in a bottle. It's just like, oh, we need four minutes. Bang, 
<laughs> just knock this out in two days yeah get these great go. lyrics <laughs> get these great lyrics and we just kind of like tossed it off and the next thing you know it's like one of their biggest hits i love that that was it was russia's only top 40 hit hit number go. 21 in october 1982 and michael we've been trying to find since those podcasts came out casey Kasem introducing <laughs> rush on american top 40 we haven't been able to find it. Maybe one of your listeners can dig it no, up. No, we have found it, Steve. We did? Oh, absolutely. The audio? Yeah. Yeah, you just forgot. I forgot? We, yeah, we played it. Are you sure? I'm 300% sure. Where he says that he doesn't. Yeah, I'm tell, we'll talk about it later. Steve. Wow. Don't okay. <laughs> My memory's gone, Michael. Oh, I haven't heard it on your show yet. So um, I'm looking forward to unless that. Unless I'm wrong. Unless I'm wrong. I definitely have audio. I definitely check Steve, check our Instagram page. Maybe you didn't share it with me. Oh, it's entirely possible. <laughs> <laughs> None of us we are getting any younger guys. None of us are getting we have any known e we have known each other for a long time, and I have imaginary conversations with Steve, I think. And I just I say things <laughs> and I think I'm saying them to him, and maybe I'm not at all. Maybe you just dreamed that you shared it with Steve. I did. <laughs> all right. Well, that could happen. This album fell between the very highly successful moving pictures and grace under pressure grace under pressure era was was obviously very big on mtv uh the videos for that were great i am a child of the 80s so i didn't mind their 80s look and the steinberger bass and all of that stuff and the way they danced around it was all great for me this album peaked at number 10 in the United States, number one in Canada, and number three in the UK. It went platinum in the US and Canada, silver in the UK. The tour for this album lasted more than a year, from April 82 to May 83. That's a long time to be on the road. That is a long time. <laughs> um, uh, you know, this, this album, even though it did very well, it turned a lot of hardcore Rush fans off, though, mm -hmm. because of the, the change to keyboards. So... It picked up a lot of other Rush fans, I guess, that filled in the void. But uh, yeah. a lot of fans to this day, you know, considers signals to be the turning off point for them. Yeah. Yeah. And I know there's there are those Rush fans who think of Rush in terms of Rush without keyboards, Rush with keyboards. I tend to think of the eras of Rush as shrieking Getty and singing Getty. <laughs> <laughs> i love it all and i i don't know why you would limit yourself and say that that particular musical instrument is just blasphemy can't have that in there but, well, i think tim comerford from um rage against the machine in the documentary beyond the lighted stage he said that Getty lee was his favorite bassist and he didn't want to listen to a rush where his favorite bassist didn't play bass <laughs> Now, I think he was talking more about uh, like Hold Your Fire and Power Windows, but yeah. there are sections in some of the songs where he's not playing bass. So maybe that was just something that I guess they wanted. He wanted more bass. And I guess maybe a lot of people think the same thing. Got to have more cowbell. More cowbell. Uh -huh. <laughs> and in Rush's terms, that means bass. That's right. I think what we found, Michael, is that the fans that jumped on board with Rush in the 70s generally are the ones that were not happy with the keyboards mm -hmm. fans that jumped on board in the eighties. Like we did were introduced to the keyboards when we jumped on board with rush, like you were, and like we were, and we embrace all eras of rush, 
but I think the seventies fans are the ones that have the toughest time with the keyboards. Yeah. At least that's what we found. I like to tell them then you must really hate Xanadu. Yes. Well, the thing, too, is that Rush, even back in the 70s and the beginning of the 80s, before Signals, they were experimenting with things anyway. There isn't a, there are two Rush albums in a row that sound the same. So it isn't that strange to think of them doing something like this. It was just another step in their progression. And they eventually, you know, stopped using as, as many keyboards. So... I don't know. If anyone still thinks that, you know, signals is the, the jumping off point, I, I suggest you try to jump back in later on. Yeah. 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 Maybe so. I, you know, you don't get that from Van Halen fans. You don't get Van Halen fans saying, oh, I mean, there are some, but by and large, Van Halen fans like 1984. And, right. you know, when they started to, to put some keyboards on, and I think the keyboards on 1984 sound more dated to me than, than what Rush did but that's just me. So let's talk a little bit more about this. The <laughs> Rolling Stone Magazine's J.D. Considine called this album mostly a wasted effort and gave it two stars. Yeah, that's ridiculous. <laughs> when was that written? He doesn't know what he's talking about. He does not know anything about anything. That came out in 1982. <laughs> I found that uh, online. I, I It was in the archi uh, Internet Archive, and I looked at it, and I read the whole thing, and I said, Oh man, this guy, man, and I wouldn't get along with him very well or, or her. I don't even know if JD is a, a man or a woman, but I have to disagree. Yeah. I told, I couldn't disagree anymore. This is a, <laughs> such an amazing, beautiful album. You know, Steve and I were talking, I think we must've mentioned it on the podcast that not only were there keyboards that set it apart from other rush albums, but also this is the first time that Neil really started writing personal songs like songs from his own experience as opposed mm -hmm. to like fantasy songs or story songs that definitely talked about the human condition but they were talking these some of these songs are talking about his human condition which is completely different and uh you know sets apart this album from yeah. the other ones in, th in that way as well so i don't know how you can't be drawn in by a song like subdivisions so many people are just you know sucked in by this song because of the lyrics and the personal nature of them. Yeah, and, and they're so relatable. It just, it speaks to so many people. Let's talk about the credits. Uh, obviously, Getty Lee, bass, guitar, synthesizers, vocals, arrangements. Alex Lifeson, electric and acoustic guitars. Moog Taurus pedals. Uh, Neil Peart, drums, percussion, arrangements. Spoken vocal on subdivisions, which I think in the video and and in concerts, it's always been Alex, as far as I know. Yeah, he usually does it, yeah. And I don't know if he's miming it or actually saying it. Well, that's a good question, Steve. I've you know? always wondered I've, that. I have no idea. I have no idea. That's a good question. It definitely is Neil, though. Yeah. On on the recording. Yeah. And, you know, we spoke with J, uh, Jacob Moon, who does an excellent... He's a Canadian musician. He does an excellent cover of the song. And he played it for the guys when Subdivisions was 
inducted into the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame. And backstage of that show, he asked Neil to say the word subdivisions into this little <laughs> micro cassette recorder he had. Nice. And now and now when he plays the song, he plays Neil's Neil's version of subdivisions into That's the microphone. So it's cool. That's yeah. so cool. Uh, he should have had him do like his um, his voice message too. Neil, can you say? I know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you can't come I don't to know why I didn't right ask. <laughs> I don't know why I didn't ask him to play it for us. Maybe next time we'll ask yeah. him. Yeah, that would have been funny. Like, oh, hi, this is Neil. Here. Can I come to the phone? <laughs> uh, ben Mink from the Canadian progressive rock band FM on electric mm. violin on losing it. We'll talk more about that in a bit, but let's dive right into subdivisions. One of the three singles from this album these lyrics were written started to be written as early as 1981 and like i said it's a it's a relatable song i grew up kind of out in the country and i still felt like that kid from subdivisions from the song subdivisions that you know there's got to be something better out there that's not here stifling me yeah i mean i think every kid can relate to this song drawn like moths we drift into the city and jerry you would mention to this mentioned this to me just a few minutes ago the cyclical nature of this song at the end of the song one of our listeners pointed this out to us uh you're you're drawn back out to the suburbs as an adult so you end up right back where you started and the cycle starts all over again right but as an older person you kind of have a fondness for the things that you leave behind. And that's mm -hmm. what happens at the end of the song, somewhere out of a memory of lighted streets on quiet nights. You know, it's just, that's what you remember. You don't remember the boredom. You don't remember the, how you were maybe the outcast. You don't remember the high school halls and the backs of cars and, and the basement bars. You just, you know, 40 or 50 years later, you're just like, oh, that wasn't so bad, I guess. <laughs> and you bring your kids there and then they feel the same way. <laughs> You might remember the backs of cars. Yeah, you very well might remember those. That's true. That's maybe that's why you go back. Yeah. But the um, misfits weren't in the backs of cars, Michael. That's yeah, that's true. Like us. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> you have a very good point there. So subdivisions, what do you love most about this song, guys? Is it the lyrics? Is it the bass? Is it the drumming? Is it all of it put together? I mean, it's easy to say it's all of it, but do you have a favorite feature from this song? Well, I think for me, it's definitely the, the highlight of every Rush song for me is the lyrics. The lyrics. You're the, get, you're the lyrics guy. You you have the lyrics at the end of every show. Yeah, I really, really love not only with Rush, but I I love paying attention to lyrics. I think, you know, if you're going to write a song, it should be about something. Certainly, there are songs that I love that aren't probably not about anything. Yeah. Um, but 
Rush songs are almost always about something. <laughs> and it, you're always rewarded by digging into them. But beyond that, what I love is Neil's playing is that he switches up his drum patterns, the bass pattern, bass drum pattern, hi-hat pattern in every verse of this song. And you don't really notice it. I never even really noticed it until I was doing some research for talking about this song. And then you listen to it and you're like, how is he even remembering how to play that from verse to verse? And it really just propels the song in a different way every single verse. It really is something fantastic. Yeah, I agree with you, Jerry. I think the drums are what stands out for me. It's different every verse. At the end, Neil is just smashing away at those cymbals. The ending is just amazing. And uh, we read from Neil's liner notes in the tour book that Alex and Neil sort of became the rhythm section on this album and in this song. Getty was playing the keyboards, so it wasn't bass and drums as the rhythm section. It was guitar and drums, mm -hmm. and it was just a different, a different way for Rush to work, and Neil really, really loved that, and Alex really embraced it. Yeah, and these are the kind of small things that make this song so interesting, because you don't really hear that bass. Uh, you don't right. really hear that drum pattern. You don't really pick up that the rhythm section is the guitar and the bass yeah um but it it comes through in some way that's what sets this song apart from so many other rush songs or other songs in general yeah it's and again like what you guys say about every song that you cover for rush uh and a great solo by alex a great yep. <laughs> solo is amazing it is it is great and you know the thing is, is that this is really where he started using his uh whammy bar too he switched over i think exclusively this is gonna somebody's gonna correct me on this one i know it you said um, the same thing on the podcast Jim. did i really i, I, I think you, you did yeah i think you did you said someone's <laughs> gonna correct me and nobody did so nobody did so i guess no, it's right. right yeah there you go uh he switched over from uh gibson's defenders and um he used his whammy bar and then he just leaned on that whammy bar for the next four albums and it just changed the way he played it changed the way he approached uh soloing because he could just get so much more range in between everything he was doing. And he was using it while he was just strumming along. It just adds texture. I mean, his, his guitar playing changed. That's another thing I think that, that hardcore early Rush fans don't like is that his guitar playing changed and it had to change because of all the keyboards. Mm -hmm. But it changed in such an interesting and dramatic way from the, the riff-based kind of playing to more of an emotional space filling dive bombing <laughs> just an amazing uh way to to fill up this space that you really don't hear from guitarists because the guitarists are always you know knocking at the door wanting to come in and play a solo for you but alex is a master guitarist and yeah. he can play in any nook and cranny and that's what he does and what I love about Alex is that he has managed to do so many different types of sounds, and yet it's still identifiably Alex every time. Right. Um, yeah. But it's like there's almost no two things that he plays that are the same, and, and yet it's always just, that's Alex. Subdivisions is my second favorite Rush song of all time. I, I, can, I don't know if what my top 10 are, Steve, 
but I do know that <laughs> that's number two for me. And number one is also on this album. Really? So, yeah. Okay. Which is why this is my favorite Rush album. We're going to move on to the Analog Kid. This is a companion piece to Digital Man. Mm-hmm. And what I really love about this song is that huge spatial sound during the you move me you move me sections mm-hmm. um to me that is rush trying to somewhat create the lyrical connection with the music of the spheres And it's something Rush couldn't have done on a previous record without the keyboards. The keyboards really make that section for me. Mm-hmm. And this, you talk about top tens. This is in my top 10 Rush songs. This is my favorite song on the record. The bass line is iconic. It's the rockinest song on the record. The lyrics are brilliant. Every person can relate, or at least every boy can relate to being that 12 year old <laughs> boy. Yeah lying in the grass dreaming yeah for sure and it, it contains one of the best um solos too alex's solo because oh, that yeah. section where he's soloing it's just really the three of them if you listen really really closely you can just almost hear the three of them in a room alex on one side getting on one side neil right in the middle because it, there's nothing else there's just space between each each instrument you know, another complaint about this album, I know all the complaints about this album, is that it's muddy sounding, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. everything just kind of blends together. But in that moment, there's separation yeah. between all of these different things. And every all three of them are just killing it. It's kind of, you know, like the crazy jammy solo part in Free Will. You know, the three of them are just all just going crazy. And it yeah. just sounds beautiful. If you listen in headphones... Um, you can really hear the the separation between the different instruments. Yeah, I was listening to this today. I listened to the song twice in a row, trying to pick out what I was going to say about it. And I wrote down the bass, the guitar, the drums. <laughs> it's just <laughs> everything, everything works and everything is so frantic yet controlled in this song. And the, it's just virtuosic from all three of them. And right. by the way, if you don't want this to be a muddy album, Pick up the 5.1 surround version. There yeah. you go. Invest in some equipment and uh, it's it's worth your while. Um, Analog Kids, tremendous song. Steve's favorite song on the album. Jerry, is this your favorite or we haven't got to it yet? Uh, no, mine's Subdivisions. Subdivisions. All right. Yeah. I also uh, love that wah, 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 before the solo. <laughs> yes. And at the end. And at I the love end. That. It's, it's tremendous. Okay, let's move on to chemistry. 
this was a song that was developed during sound checks for the Moving Pictures tour. said it was the easiest one to write and it was the first time that all three lee lifeson and Peart all collaborated on the lyrics for a rush song this is one of those songs where you you can kind of get a sense of maybe the, the the production being a little bit um muddy if you if you like the word or or um muted but i just love the feel of this song just the vibe that it gives you what I love about chemistry and something that I, I think Steve brought up in the podcast, I had a different idea of what the song was about. And Steve's of the mind that the song is really about the three of them mm -hmm. and just the, the chemistry of being able to create something that's, you know, larger and better than the sum of its parts. Well, I think what you pointed out, Joe, was the beginning of the song is about, you know, actual chemistry. And then as we get toward the end of the song, it ultimately becomes about Getty, Alex, and Neil and the chemistry that they have together. About personal chemistry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's the reason why they all took part in the lyric writing of this song. And it's the last Rush song that Getty or Alex has a lyric credit on. Believe it or yeah. not. Yeah. It's almost like they started off at the, the micro, like the cellular level. Mm -hmm. And then it, and then they, they, they like sort of zoomed out from there. A very natural sciency. Yeah. <laughs> I think well, that's so. another thing. That's <laughs> another thing they do. Tell that not only do they build a lot of times musically from one spot to another, but the lyrics do the same thing. And they definitely, like you said about um, about the analog kid, how the music matches the you know, the lyrical content, this, that's the same thing with this too, is that as the lyrics build up from, like you said, simple to the more complex, I think that the music does the same thing. And I love the solo at the beginning, which is a right, weird yeah. spot for a solo, but it, yeah. it works perfectly here. Yeah, it's very Al interesting. Alex, Alex just has this way of doing exactly what is right for every single song, every single time really incredible yeah 
I don't know what his ability is to read or write music, but I can't see him sitting there scribbling like eighth notes and stuff. He's just, (laughs) just, what do I need? Okay. I know what this means. Yeah. He goes by feel completely. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've heard and read a couple of things where he just kind of, you know, they're, they're working on the solo and he'll just step up, play it. And then they're like, I think that's it. And he's like, let me give it a couple of tries. And he tries a couple of things. And they're like, no, that was the first time. Sometimes on some songs, they use the solo that they put together for the demo. Yeah. Yeah. The first time he ever played a solo for the song, he played on a demo. And then that's the final solo that they use. So, I mean, he, he, like you said, he plays by feel. I'm sure he does read music. Maybe not a lot. I'm sure he's not charting everything out. I don't think, like you said, Um, but he just has an emotional connection to his instrument. He just plays by feel. He can connect to his own emotions and bring them out in the guitar. Yeah, I think it's it must be amazing to be so good at something that you're just like, oh, let me give this a crack, and you do it, and then you're like, okay, <laughs> let me let me try a couple other things, and it's like not as good as the you you just nailed it the first time so well that you can yeah. never like you can't improve on it, right. I remember there's one story where um, somebody like he played something, some solo, and then they went back and they listened to it. And somebody was just like, oh, yeah, so play that part again. He's like, what part? Like, he didn't even remember. Like, I don't even know how it goes. I just played it off the top of my head. (laughs) I can only imagine that how many times he's played something and maybe nobody nobody had the tapes rolling. Right. And how amazing that probably was. And we'll never know. Yeah, but he's like he is. He's one of those guys that just does it right the first. It's it's almost like if an architect is like, okay, go build what you think uh, this thing should be, where we have these shows, and they build the Sydney Opera House. Right. It's like, okay, um, I can do another one if, if that's not good enough. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I think you got it. <laughs> right. Then six months it. later, does it again? Makes yeah. the Chrysler building the next time. It's like what? <laughs> All right, so let's let's move on to Digital Man. The writing again for this one began back in '81. So um, you know, Neil was was he had some good ideas, and and then he was going out on tour and playing other stuff, and they were working on stuff and sound checks, and then it eventually ended up some of it being on signals. And this is this is a, like a such a different feel from most Rush songs. yet it's still like i said it's uniquely rush identifiable as rush but it's not something that if you were weaned on caress of steel you'd be like this is not even the same band but yet it is yeah neil called it disco and like jerry said uh terry brown 
was so unhappy with the direction this song was going in, he initially refused to take part in it. He walked out of the studio. They had to talk him into coming back in, which I think is what ultimately led to Rush parting ways with Terry Brown. They just didn't see eye to eye anymore. Yeah. But to me, this song is incredible. Uh, Getty's bass line is amazing. There's a reggae sort of feel to to the bridge part that's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite songs on the record. I, I guess you would agree too, right, Jer? Yeah, and it starts off with that great drum. That great yes. Drum, I don't even know what the, what do you call that? Drum line? What is that thing? Yeah. Drum it's, fill. Drum sure, it's a fill. It fills in. <laughs> it is just unbelievable sounding. Just like he's thumping tubs over there. And it certainly is a very, very strange song. I think I had a hard time trying to figure out what the song was really about, right? Yes. Yeah, we, yeah. we were we weren't sure. Every once in a while there's a stumper, and this is definitely a stumper of a song. Um, but if it's supposed to be the I was gonna say the analog to the analog kid, if it's supposed to be the companion to the analog kid, I suppose that it's just about you know early digital technology and how it affects human beings. Mm-hmm. But that's my guess. Maybe he was thinking about artificial intelligence and things like that. You, you don't, he don't need a bed. He's, you know, he won't need a bed. He's a digital man. Right. He lives inside his computer. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it, it's an interesting song. It's, you, it's clear that those guys were listening to the police a lot. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, I mean, you, you even get some Stuart Copeland vibes from the drumming in some parts of this. Um, yeah throughout the album and in different places. And this is one of those places, but, uh, and, and then that whole very strange um, ending where Getty just starts to talk. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> he plays fast he, forward. <laughs> yeah. So you don't need a bad, he's a digital man. <laughs> yeah. It's very interesting. I think, that's, I think it's a sense of humor showing up too. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It comes I, up a lot. I would, I, I think it would have been great to just have, played let that play out a little more before they they faded it to see where that would have gone (laughs) it's also kind of a long song too compared you know comparatively to Mm -hmm. um the shorter songs that they started doing it's over six minutes long yeah and yeah it's just a it is a very 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 strange song if you ask me (laughs) it's the second longest song yeah yes yeah by one second We wondered on the podcast whether the analog kid and the digital man were not only were they the same person, but were they Neil? Yeah. I remember that conversation that you guys had. It's so, I mean, the guy was just so good at what he did that it's, you start to look for things that maybe even aren't there, especially when you, when you read that, that note about that, this was a conceptual piece uh, and then eventually, you know, with countdown, you're leaving the planet. It's like, you know, you're starting out in the suburbs and then it, it's like this journey and, mm-hmm. and Neil's like, yeah, we were hoping nobody would have noticed that. Yeah. <laughs> <It was laughs> yeah. like, we weren't talking about that, but, uh, oh, you caught that, eh? Busted. Um, but yeah, it, it is, it's easy to start, um, almost overanalyzing to the point where you're like, 
is this is Neil talking about himself here? I mean, because Neil did put so much of himself in the lyrics. Yeah, he kind of cautioned against that, uh, saying that not everything was as literal as mm -hmm. some fans uh, think they were. But I still do it anyway. It doesn't bother <laughs> me. I like to think yeah. it's Neil. <laughs> hey, if Neil doesn't like it, he can come down and say yeah. something. <laughs> you know? Even if, uh, if I had ever spoken to Neil, he's like, that song's not about me. I'm like, yeah, it is. Come on. It's totally about me. Right? But the thing <laughs> yeah. is that he had such a such a great way of tapping into some kind of um, common area in everyone's lives that you kind of think, well, I feel that way. So he must feel that way. It's just he was just such a great writer that way that he could just, you know, tell you things about yourself that you didn't even know you thought about. And then you're just like, oh, my God, yeah, that's how I feel about this subject, too. So you obviously are just going to, you know, impress your own emotions onto him. He might have made a good counselor. Yeah, he might have been a great counselor. Yeah. yeah. Let's move on to part two of fear. The weapon. which uh, was great. Had a great uh, live intro from, uh, I forget the actor's <laughs> name, from SCTV. Right. <laughs> right. The Count. Um, the Count, yes. Uh, this is a fantastic keyboard song. Uh, the Weapon is. Is, a, is a great, I mean, if you just heard Rush from this point on, you would think, well, Getty's a keyboard player and sometimes he plays bass. Mm -hmm. But it's the opposite. So, I don't, what, tell me what you like about the weapon, guys. I think this is a perfect example of what, what Neil was talking about with Alex and he becoming the rhythm section. I mean, Alex, to me, carries this song, even though it's key, keyboard heavy, the guitar stands out for me. What do you think, Jar? Yeah, it's definitely, I, I, I say this a lot about Rush songs, but it's an odd song. It definitely is an <laughs> odd song. There's that whole section in the middle that's ostensibly the solo where Alex is just kind of noodling. He's just mm -hmm. making these noises. He's just not, I mean, yeah. it's not even really a proper solo, but there's so much stuff going around him. And Neil is just kind of keeping this rhythm, this really kind of tight rhythm. And every once in a while, he's he adds a stroke and then he adds another stroke and then he adds mm -hmm. another stroke and then he adds another stroke until the end where he's playing and the song just kind of kicks right back into where it left off before they started doing the whole noodly thing. Yeah. It's a it's a great example of a, of Rush as a band playing a song as a band, you know what I mean? Like yeah. I just like to imagine them in the studio playing the song and just kind of like looking at each other like okay, you know, two more bars, two more bars. <laughs> yeah. That's where we're going to come right back in and they all know, you know, they all know that's that's where really where it's going to crash back in. And as somebody uh 
pointed out, I don't know if we pointed it out ourselves, if somebody pointed out, is that being the middle part of a three-part song, this song fades in and fades out. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So it c- connects the other two because the first, you know, the, the, well, the first. The enemy within. Yeah. I was, I was doing the, I was going the other way. The enemy yeah, within is the first one, but it's not on, <laughs> it's on the next album. Right. That yeah. just kind of jumps in. It starts on a dime. Yes. It does no preamble. It just kind of bangs right in, but fades out. This song fades in and fades out. And then the, um, which on? witch hunt of course that <laughs> fades in and yeah. then ends i mean it's really there's a, an architecture here that you have to three albums ahead you have to be thinking to do this song or to even remember the names of the songs I'm like, <laughs> apparently i bet they were i bet they were really good chess players <laughs> oh sure. think ahead. Uh, that's but it, star, that star trek three dimension chess <laughs> I will say it's probably easier to put together a playlist of the fear songs than the gangster of boats trilogy. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Yeah. Where are those songs on the cutting floor? I'd like to hear the rest of that. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So we we've got part four. We need the other part, three parts of the trilogy. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I think the weapon is a terrific, a terrific song. Like I said, I, for me, I think mostly the keyboards stand out and, and the, the fact that it, you don't hear many songs fade in and fade out is, is kind of right. crazy. But I I like that you could actually loop this song and it would just never end. And these mm-hmm. you know you would hear them continuously. You know, like you said, they get into the noodling and then they find they just find their way back in this find their way back. in right. this very seamless way. It's uh, yeah, it, and it would be the same thing if you if you put this song just cut it you know, one after another, after another, after another, and it would be the same. It would be kind of the same effect. It would be interesting. Yeah, definitely. So let's get to our, our, our second single off this album, New World Man, second in the running order. I, don't, I actually didn't write down what order they were released in, but um, so much police influence on this song. Yeah. line to me is what what stands out it's iconic one of getty's best i think yeah 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 and when we spoke to uh lex the the guy who does the bass for our podcast he he picked this as who picked this as what did i pick this as one of my favorites or did he uh i did i did i believe and lex Lex agreed with me lex agreed and lex agreed because it's if you just hear this bass line you know what song this is yeah which is unheard of i mean how many songs i can't I, there, there are probably tons of them i can't think of one right now where if you just hear the bass line you're like oh yeah 
I know what song that is because the bass lines usually don't carry songs like that. But in New World, man, it does. <laughs> yeah, yeah there, there, you got, you're right. There's probably not that many. You could probably pick out Roundabout by Yes from the bass line and a few mm -hmm, others. Sure, but, yep. Um, but yeah, this is a, a great bass song. And it's because it's so similar in style in a rush kind of way to the police. I wonder if that, how much that played into that being a single off the album. I don't, yeah, know I, don't if know. I don't know if Rush has much to do with that, though. Isn't it the record company that picks the well, singles? Well, that's what I'm saying. I, I'm then? saying, like, if the record company said, oh, that sounds like the police, we, we should make that a single. That's that's what I'm thinking might have happened in this situation. I, I haven't researched it, but it seems logical that if the police are having success uh, and this song sounds like the police, you would pick that as a single. Well, and also sure. it was only three and a half minutes, which <laughs> is huge for a single. Yes, that helps. You don't have to and cut the, that down. The thing that amazes me is what Jerry was talking about before, that they wrote it in a day, they recorded it the next day, and it was their biggest hit. I mean, how crazy is that? Right. Amazing. Yeah. And, it, and especially this, and the song is definitely a lot heavier than it appears to be. You know, it's tackling some some mm -hmm. big world issues social issues between first world countries and third world countries and who's going to make room for the new world man like what mm -hmm. does it mean for emerging countries to become first world countries like where's the room for that where's the space for that who loses in in that kind of race yeah but you know you can tap your feet to it <laughs> it's, sure got like a, it's got like a bubbly keyboard to it mm -hmm. i mean it's it's very sly there that's that's another great thing about the band if we just want to talk about the band in general is that they can take uh influences they're not like other bands you know that have their style and they're just like well this is us you know we're motorhead we do motorhead you know or, <laughs> we're, we're acdc we do acdc they're rush yeah. they do they do whatever rush, they want. but they do whatever they want. They are influenced by the police. They want to throw in a little, you know, reggae beat in here somewhere mm -hmm. or just leave room in spaces and songs where, you know, prog bands might just fill it all up. Man, whatever, man. This is the song and this is how the song works and this is how Rush is going to do it. Yeah. Talented guys. This was one of the ones where when you guys broke down this album, that was one of my favorite lyrical discussions that you guys had. Was for this oh, great. Song. I hope I didn't just ruin it by talking about what I just said. <laughs> it might have contradicted no, everything I said before. No, you didn't contradict yourself. <laughs> you can, I, I don't, I, did, I should have wrote down the, the uh, episode numbers for these because I don't remember what they were. But uh, if you go check out the Something for Nothing podcast uh, back episodes, um, yeah, I think this 51, is 51, 52, and 53, Michael. <laughs> there you go. There you had it right there. <laughs> Steve has a mind like a bear trap. No, no. I just I just looked it up before we started this. <laughs> All right. Uh we're going to get to a very different song now. Uh track 7, Losing It. Dancers loads of frantic pace and pain and desperation. Breaking limbs and downcast face aglow with perspiration. Stiff as wire, her lungs on fire with just the briefest pause. Flooding through her memory, the echoes of old applause. 
this is probably not a widely popular opinion among Rush fans, but for me, this is my favorite Rush song of all time. Wow. wow. Number one. Number one, and it's not even... Like, I don't even hesitate. It's just it, as much as I love Rush and as much as I love so many other songs, I don't really even know what it is about this song that speaks to me. I know I love the ethereal weirdness of the electric violin that Ben Mink plays. I love the lyric, the idea of of it's so much. You, you rubes have no idea what it's like to have this great gift and then lose it. You know, right. you you know, mm -hmm. you 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 don't know how lucky you are not to have experienced this and then have it taken away, kind of thing, and and of course I was going through a big uh, at one point in my life was going through a big Ernest Hemingway phase, and you know it, it references uh, Ernest Hemingway's life as well. So there's just so many elements here that spoke to me, and it's just so different than anything that I've heard from any band that I just uh, I gravitated toward it. Losing it is my favorite song. Did you get a chance, Michael, to see them perform it live as we did? I did, and I don't cry in public often, but the tears were just rolling. It was so emotional. Probably the greatest performance of any song that I've seen Rush do live, at least in my opinion. What do you think, Jared? Oh, yeah, yeah. Who, did you, who was playing violin when you saw it? Uh, that would have been uh, the other Dinklage. Jonathan Dinklage. Yes. 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 <laughs> we had we had him on the podcast too, and we talked about this song. Yeah, I haven't uh, listened what, to it yet. I'm saving that one. Oh, <laughs> oh, you'll love you'll love it. You'll love That's it. That's one of my favorite episodes. But he definitely he goes into you know more detail than the two of us could go into what it meant to him to play this song, and it's always been one of my favorite songs too. I mean, as a 17 year old listening to this album and loving this song. It's definitely it, it, loving this song when I was 17 definitely made me feel like a character in subdivisions. Do you know what I mean? Like it's yeah. such mm -hmm. an emotional song. It's such a mature song. And, uh, but that's the, that again, I hate to just say how great rush is all the time. Obviously that's what we're here to talk about, <laughs> yeah. but they can, you know, they can put a song like this on an album with an electric violin and 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 this is one of the songs, at least at the beginning, where Neil is not, you know, the crazy drum god that everybody says he is. He is a crazy drum god. But in this song, he's he's just playing along to the song until yeah. the end, you know, where the solo comes in, of course, and Alex just wipes the floor with everybody in the room. <laughs> yeah. It gets so heavy and so dark, right? The song just turns on a dime. It's this beautiful thing. It's so sad. And these characters are losing their gift and shuffling off into the darkness and closing the door behind them and never seeing the sun again. And then, <laughs> oh, and then all of a sudden, yeah. the rain Wham. clouds open up and the solo <laughs> comes. Yeah, it, it's really beautiful. It's amazing. I think that might also have a bit to do with it as one of the, you know, when I was growing up and I heard this song, it was so much deeper than most of the stuff I was listening to. Of course, uh, especially in the early, early eighties, pop music was, was all over the place. And then, you know, then the hair metal bands came in and that kind of thing. Right. And this was like, it's like such a mature song and so serious. And, and yeah. that probably held some appeal to me as well. 
I mean, it's just, again, it's another reason I think why some of the older Rush fans kind of lost their interest in the band at this point because of a song like this, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, as a Rush fan, again, uh, coming later on in their career, to me, it seems totally normal to me because if you think about Rush going from 2112 to A Farewell to Kings, I mean, that's so much more different, I think, than going from moving pictures to signals, right? 2112 is this bombastic, sidelong, you know, opus that is just so loud and there's explosions at the end and there's people coming from other planets to, you know, take over again. And then the next album opens up with a like a 12 string acoustic classical guitar and birds chirping in the background. I mean, that's, that's radically different to me. Signals is not that much different than previous albums. I just think it's a, a matter of rush fans buying the album, hearing the keyboards, and then just not giving it a chance. And what we're finding with our podcast is a lot of those seventies rush fans are listening to us and hearing us talk about albums like this and like power windows and like hold your fire and then going back and listening and saying, you know what, this stuff's pretty good. Mm. We're, we're converting some people. And uh, that to me makes what we're doing so worthwhile. Yeah. I had been, uh, I had not heard clockwork angels in a while. And I listened to your series on clockwork angels and it really made me want to listen to it for like a week solid it made me have a deeper appreciation for the album even though i already liked the album it it just said wow i can't go this long without hearing it again now that i have this better appreciation and understanding for the album and you know i talked about the tears coming for uh losing it if you can get through the garden without tearing up seeing that live i don't know you know you just must not have feelings i guess (laughs) (laughs) It's true. You know, um, doing the podcast is like, it's like every Rush fan's dream is like cornering somebody at a party and telling them how great Rush is so that they go back and listen to it. And it, when people say that that's what they do, like, oh, I had never listened to this album before because I didn't like it the first time. And then after hearing you discuss it, I went back and I really like it now. That's what you feel like. You're, you're the Rush fan at the party who finally gets to convert somebody. Yeah, that's got, it's got to be a great feeling. I, I listen to you guys when you read the emails and I can tell how touched you are at being able to reach people on that kind of a level. Well, it I'm going to give it, I'm going to do another segue. One person I haven't been able to reach is Jerry about the last <laughs> song on signals, which is countdown. Jerry doesn't like Countdown. See that segue? 
I was gonna, I was actually, that's in my notes to bring up. Uh, I was going to ask, it's right, it says right here, has Jerry come around on this yet? Well, here's the thing, is that it's never been one of my favorite songs, and I could never pinpoint why. And then someone, after the Signals episodes, someone sent us a link to a version of the song without the NASA overdubs. Mm-hmm. Without the the countdown thing. And I like that one better. I don't know why. I, I have no idea. I think the song was exactly the same, except for the, the, the Mission Control countdown overdubs. And then I was listening to it today, the regular album with the, with the countdown. And I was playing some games with my daughter and we were listening to it. Um, and I was like kind of half listening to it. And I, I really got into the groove of the song. The song has Ooh. a really good groove at the end. So it really does. I don't know. Sometimes here's the thing with a, a lot of people I've heard from or just know is like lyrics are secondary. You know, they want to feel what the song is about. They just want to feel the emotion of the song. They'll mm-hmm. I've I've gotten emails from people saying, like, I've been listening to Rush since 1980 and I never knew what this song was about. You know what I mean? Like they listened to it hundreds of times and they never mm-hmm. really gave a thought to the lyrics and that's what i always give a thought to so i think with a song like countdown if i can not listen to the lyrics then it's it's a really good song (laughs) which is just a strange way for me to listen to rush such an odd choice for a single very odd very strange this was the other of the three singles on the album and it's i mean it's it's almost six minutes long I don't know what the single length was or if there was a different length for the single, but it was, it's a very strange pick. I always was a big sort of NASA space flight kind of guy. So I never had a problem with this and the lyrics and I kind of knew, I mean, I do, I see your point with the whole, uh, you could cut it with a knife kind of being a little trite for a, a rush lyric, but it was, was the other one you had a problem with stuff stuff the stuff of dreams yeah stuff but someone dreams. wrote in and said that's uh from that's a shakespeare thing a shakespeare thing and i was like oh yeah no i feel like a dummy yeah he's kinda, <laughs> so yeah he's, he's kind of good <laughs> that's yeah it was a good reference so sorry i screwed that one up yes. i don't know why i never made that connection but so you do like it as long as you don't hear the uh the nasa countdown stuff yeah i mean yeah. there you know there are other songs other rush songs that i don't really like it all this one i just thought uh, you know they always have such great closing songs for their albums and i just think that this one is a lesser kind of sounding song especially for an album that's so great i don't know i just wanted it to end a different way i've always wanted this album to end a different way (laughs) i don't know why would you have changed the tracking order on this no, the other every other song. That's the other thing too about Rush songs is they're always tracked so great. They are. I can't imagine it's and you know it's a failing of my own. I think obviously so many people love this song. I've got to come around sooner or later. I just have to. I just have to find a way to appreciate it more than I do. What I love about this song is that it's so meaningful for Getty, Alex, and Neil because they were there to witness the space shuttle launch. And to mm-hmm. me, I feel like you can feel in the song that it's meaningful to them. If that makes any sense at all. Yeah, I agree. I think you do feel the excitement that they felt 
at seeing this, uh, you know, the was that the um, what do you say? Called it the dragon, the white dragon, or whatever. Mm-hmm. The sleeping white whatever. dragon. Sleeping white dragon. Yeah. Yeah. That's a pretty good. See, that's a pretty good uh, metaphor right there. I think. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great nihilism right there. <laughs> right. I'm changing my mind even as we speak. <laughs> yeah. It just. We're converting Jerry. I mean, it, you guys obviously you just have such a love for this band, or you wouldn't do what you do with with the with the podcast. And I imagine that every day is like rediscovering rush almost like for the first time yeah what we're doing is not only helping our listeners rediscover rush but we're helping ourselves rediscover rush we're learning so much about every song and every album and i love rush more now than i did two years ago much more don't you think yeah yeah there were definitely um some albums that slipped past me at the time Test for Echo did that. I think I listened to Counterparts a lot. It never was my favorite, but then when I started listening to it again, but definitely Vapor Trails. I didn't really yep. give a good hearing mm-hmm. to um, to Vapor Trails, probably because I didn't like the way it sounded. Um, Talk, about your muddy. <laughs> Talk about yeah. your muddy production there. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and we definitely saw them on that tour a few times, and I thought the songs were great, but mm-hmm. I don't think I ever listened to the album after the tour. And then when we listened to it for the podcast we had to do four episodes on that album yeah because the songs were so incredibly full and rich and the meaning behind all of the songs if you read them um against what neil had just gone through in the past the the five years previous that's that album's like a a masterpiece it's yeah i wish i could put it in my top five you could <laughs> i could but i don't you think could. i can but, but when that episode oh happens it'll, it'll be a surprise to everybody jeez louise it's impossible <laughs> i don't want to do it <laughs> yeah it's like i read ghost rider and and you have definitely a different view of that song once you've read that book yeah there there's definitely. no way to hear that song the same way after you've read neil's book and then you hear it again it's uh so amazing and and so sad and dark and and all of those things and uh but i hear what you're saying about losing sort of losing track i i when i was working in sports is kind of when counterparts and test for echo came out and i kind of didn't i kind of missed them the first time around and i and i think vapor trails was me returning to rush when that when that came out and um yeah like you i was like Okay, the sound of the album isn't great, but I can tell there were some good songs in there. What do you guys think of the the remixed version of, of Vapor Trails? I like it much better myself. I think it's yeah. terrific. I think it's terrific too. Yeah, I noticed when they, they, they released a couple of the tracks on the, um, was it the retrospective, um, the compilations, and you could tell right away that those songs opened up nicely when they were remixed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just a shame that uh, I don't know how it got out like that. <laughs> I mean, it's just <laughs> so strange, right? Yeah. Usually the, the band is so um, protective of their yeah. material. But, you know, it, it, it turned out great in the end. So that's, that's all any of us should really care about. Yeah. I guess sometimes you can put too much trust in your, your producer. No, no, trust me. This is great, guys. This is... Yeah, sounds <laughs> great. Like, 
okay. (laughs) And then then you hear what someone else does to it, like a Stephen Wilson remix, and you go, wow. (laughs) Yeah, really. What were we thinking? (laughs) (laughs) Well, at least they were willing to correct their mistake and put out the remix, which uh, I give them credit for. Yeah, it's very true. Yeah, I think... I think once it was out in the world and they were playing these songs live and people said, these are really great songs. It's a pity the way the record turned out. Right. And they went back and thought, yeah, these songs we play, we now we played them live. We put out the live album. They sound like this here. And they sound like this here. They, they need to be, they need to breathe a little bit. Um, but that's also the great thing about the band in general is that you can always go back and listen to stuff. I'm pretty sure that I, I'm, I'm, very very confident that even if they hadn't done uh the remix version and i had listened to it for the podcast i would still love it i just don't think there's any way i wouldn't have loved it it's just too bad that that production got in the way of my liking it the first time yeah (laughs) well and then that's a good thing too is you get to rediscover these things and and then you can fall in love with them all over again like uh like i said i it wasn't that I didn't like Clockwork Angels. It was just for whatever reason, it got put on a shelf and I hadn't listened to it in a while. And I listened to your podcast and went, I got to get that out. And then I was like, wow, it's yeah, like, this is a really good album. It's like getting a new Rush album, right? There you it's go. like, wow, they just yeah. released a new Rush album. Yeah. At least yeah. new to me. It's also one of the few benefits of getting old and having a bad memory. Oh, exactly. <laughs> yeah, really. really. Like, wow, this really sounds good. I forgot. <laughs> I forgot how good it sounded. <laughs> yeah. So we've gone back through Signals, my favorite Rush album. Uh, you guys have both proclaimed a, a very fond uh, uh, feeling about it. And I don't know if you had any any sort of overall thoughts you want to use to sum up this album. Well, to me, it's special to me because it was one of the first Rush albums I ever owned. So it's it's one of my top albums. I'm not going to say top five, but but it's up there. Mm-hmm. It's it's a classic, and uh, all eight songs are great for me. Jar? Yeah, I mean, uh, it has subdivisions on it. <laughs> I mean, that's it. It's all you need. Yeah, it's all you need. That's all. You, like, the album could have been, you know subdivisions eight times it's just subdivisions is such an amazing composition it's just an incredible songwriting it's incredible songwriting it's incredible song um and it really is the song that a lot of you know nerdy rush fans point to you know the stuff in the 70s is definitely nerdy because it's you know prog rock or whatever swords and sorcerers yeah and when, but when you know, <laughs> you know like uh, the alienated rush fan who doesn't feel a part of anything larger than himself subdivisions is his song and if you can package in uh, a thought like that or a feeling like that and an emotion and a in a song like that and have that song be a hit and have that song you know be played at concerts all the time and have people just love this song because it's their life i mean it's you can appreciate songs from bands all you want but it's hard to find a song that people connect to like people connect to subdivisions yeah i agree with that i think of it as musical literature 
Oh, definitely. Definitely. Fantastic. You mentioned the composition. The composition is, I mean, the lyrics, the music, everything comes together perfectly. And I think all Rush fans, just based on this being a band that wasn't a big top 40 band, it was always a band that sold a lot of records, but it's never cool to be a Rush fan. But now it's cool to be a Rush fan. That's that's the great thing about time is everything kind of yeah. comes around. And now it's it's the age of the nerd. You know, everybody loves the video games. Everybody loves the uh, the super, you know, the comic book characters are coming to life on the silver screen. Everybody's going to see yeah. those. And and we have, uh, you know, it's it's maybe not fashionable, but somewhat cool to be a Rush fan. Yeah, I, I think it has a lot to do, I think, with the. I want to say the younger generation and makes me sound so old. <laughs> you are old. the younger generation, but you know, uh, my kids don't have the same kind of, they're not in the same boxes as we were when we were younger. They don't have the same kind of boxes. Yeah. There are no, there are no boxes. You can, <laughs> you can listen to Ariana Grande and rush. You can listen to anything. You can watch soap operas and, you know, telenovelas and stranger things. That you can have as many different varied interests as you like, and there isn't really the the nerdy thing anymore. There isn't the the you know you can't pinpoint one thing as being crazy nerdy because everything is seems to be equally accessible and equally popular among the people who like it, and those people have a voice to talk about the things that they like in a way they never had before. And I think if we had that with Rush we wouldn't consider ourselves to be rush nerds. We would just be rush fans. Yeah. And when you, I didn't know where you're going to go with, when you talked about boxes, I was going to say, yeah, mine was an Atari 2600. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Steve. Now, now, uh, go ahead and say, say what you're going to say. Jerry. I was going to say now, if you have like a PS five or whatever, it's not even a, it's a, it's a portal <laughs> to the web. Right. So. Yeah, I don't even know. Like nowadays, they come out with these new gaming systems, and you can't buy them for like three years until they're already obsolete. So <laughs> nobody, nobody has them in stock. Um, right. Steve and Jerry, you guys have been fantastic. I've really had a great time talking about signals with you. I, just as much fun as I had listening to you guys talk about it on your show and dissect everything. I, I like the way you go through the lyrics. I like that you you break it down. You kind of talk about what each person since there's only three in the band, it doesn't take a long time. You talk about what each person does in the, in the song. Of course, it's always an Alex's solo. That's just that's <laughs> everyone. That's the best. Every, every single, and, and Alex's solo. It's almost like it's an afterthought. It's like, we don't even have to say how great it was because they're all great. Um, I've had a great time with this. This has been fun. And I want you guys to remind people where to find something for nothing, a rush fan cast. Uh, well, we're housed on, Podbean, that is our host, but you can find us on Apple, Spotify, anywhere you get podcasts. We are there. Something for nothing, a Rush Fancast. And if you want to follow us on Twitter, we're at Rush Fancast. Jerry posts our Instagram stuff at the Rushcast. And Michael, thank you so much for having us. We love your podcast as well. And it's been an honor being on yours. Yeah, it was fun. Michael's Record Collection is hosted and produced by Michael Citro. Logo graphic courtesy of Jerry Cutchins. Follow Michael's Record Collection on social media, at Mike's Records on Twitter, and Michael's Record Collection on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. 
If you like what you hear, you can support the show through our Patreon at patreon.com slash Collection. For the free newsletter version, go to substack.com and just type Michael's Record Collection into the search bar. Thanks for listening.